Live from Geppetto's workshop, this is Derailed Trains of Thoughts. Welcome to Derailed Trains of Thoughts, episode 116. Hello, Nick. Hello, Tim. Hello, listeners. Welcome to your premiere podcast on storytelling. For the creator and the consumer. It is good to see you again, Nick. It's good to see you again, then, Tim. Unfortunately, the listeners can't see us. I know. I was going to say, nice to see you, too, listeners. We're watching you. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I feel like something is watching us, even though there's just nothing but cuckoo clocks around here. It's kind of cozy in here, though. Yeah, the kitten seems kind of friendly, and the the goldfish there. Woodworking sort of stuff. Uh Yeah, but I feel like there's, I don't know, maybe someone else that is about to spring to life or something. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll we'll uh, we'll see how it goes here see, as we get through this, this podcast. Mm-hmm. But um, back home, I know it is. We are in the midst of a frigid winter. Yes, it is finally completely winter back home, <laughs> at least as of this recording. Yes, and, and which is kind of fun in some ways. You know, it's like yes, it's a stable wintry countryside landscape, and we get sun because when it's this cold. We finally get sun, which yeah. I enjoy. It, it, it's nice. It's a good mix. At least I enjoy it. It's it's unique, you know? Yeah. People will complain about it being in the teens all the time, but at the same time, it's a unique time of year, you know? I, I almost prefer that. I'd rather be cold and snowy than, like, 30 and ugly all winter. Yeah, yeah. The snow just brightens everything up yeah. a lot. So I concur. I concur. But before we move into our main segment, folks, I thought it might be nice to touch base on Babylon 5 because we talked about it last time and its lack of availability on streaming. Yes. We've complained about this many times. It was on Amazon Prime for a while. And Go90 before that. And Go90 before that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Which is no longer in existence. We don't know why it was in existence to begin with. But But since uh, Babylon 5 was taken off Amazon Prime, I guess it is in preparation for it reappearing on HBO Max. Not HBO Plus? Whatever. Like Paramount <laughs> Plus and Disney Plus. And... No, no, HBO decided to be unique. Max. They're Mac. They're to the max. Because uh, I guess because they came out in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the other interesting thing about uh, Babylon 5 being on HBO Plus. I guess they oh, finally max. did a remaster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you messed me up. It's I'm going to blame you for that one. <laughs> But yeah, I guess they finally made a remaster, uh, went back to the original print negatives, or at least the negatives that were done for TV. So that's the one downside. I mean, the special effects look better than they probably have in years, mm-hmm. but it's also means it's the TV broadcast quality, like it's in four by three. It's weird that they can somehow... Yeah, I, I don't know. Do There's the something about... I guess the reasoning is because of the, how the special effects are... I don't know. I, I've heard differing reports about okay. this. It's a little conflicting for me because I've my first viewing of Babylon 5 was the DVDs, which yeah. are the widescreen versions. Of course, I also watched it back in 2007 when we weren't we all weren't quite as used to HD yet, and I was yeah. watching it on a not flat screen TV. What? So the 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 fact that some of the special effects shots were like zoomed into proportion so that and became kind of grainier than they would have normally been have been seen on TV. It didn't bother me as much, not nearly as much as it did 10 years later when we watched it for the weekly hijack. Yeah. But if you are bothered by that and uh, don't mind the fact that it's in 4x3, this I guess it is it was shot to be watched in either. So I guess some people who are real tech digital purists 
kind of prefer it that way, especially, I guess, if you grew up watching it on when it first came out. Which, yeah. In any case, watching it in any format is worth it. Yes. <laughs> and we keep mentioning it and promoting it because <laughs> so we figured, hey, and I know I know we had at least a couple of listeners who were on right on the verge of watching it after all of us are talking about it and then they missed the, the boat when it was and, on and plus we get a nice kickback every time someone watches it. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but seriously, yes, if I routinely tell people just in modern, like, real life, that, like, the best science fiction show you've not seen is Babylon 5. Yes. And even if you don't have HBO Max, which I don't, but the nice thing about streaming services, I feel like it's not too expensive as long as you're diligent about it to to pay for it for a month or, or two to, yeah. to watch what you want to and then get off, which I did that with Netflix recently to catch up on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so yeah. it's it's not a bad deal. I may even get on HBO Max at some point just to watch some old... I know they have got a lot of uh, DC superhero cartoons, uh, okay. animated things on there. But anyway, that's enough uh, promo of B5 for now. <laughs> Let's uh, move on to Story School. For Story School today, we have a topic that's been kicked around on our list for a few months, and that topic is... The lie. The lie. Okay, so Nick, you were the one who uh, nominated this. Give us some details. Okay, not surprisingly, the idea first came to me because we've been rewatching Lost and we talk about Lost a lot, et cetera, et cetera. For the Weekly Hijack. For the Weekly Hijack. That's our current series, in case you're new. That show basically runs on lies. Like, everyone is always lying. Particularly the farther into the into it you get. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it just made me think about all the different ways that not telling the truth, lying, admitting the truth. Actually, it's a really good, or can be, I guess, a really good story element or very compelling. It's an interesting ingredient, for sure. And I think there's a couple, I guess, a couple angles my brain went to. One is just the idea that, because if you've listened to podcasts long enough, I tend to like jump to the philosophical. A lie is not just sort of like, we talked about mysteries before that's trying to find out the truth. Mm-hmm. And so that's already set up there. This There's already sort of this dramatic movement when you know there's a lie or you suspect there's a lie. Yeah, that, that's a genre that's very much about uncovering the truth. And part of the fun of the journey is the uncovering, okay, who's lying, who's... What, what's the actual substance here? And it also is in some ways the simplest and most compact version of just a moral thing i mean a moral dilemma a moral dilemma because we've got the whole you know the beginning of you know from christianity the beginning of the fall is did god really say mm-hmm. um that that you know in some ways it encapsulates pretty succinctly everything that's wrong yeah think of it that way it's like i don't know of any liar on tv or movies that people like like it is universally reviled when someone lies mm, that's an interesting point now i mean i guess the one caveat there is that some people do enjoy a charming thief, a rogue sort of sorts, but it depends on how they're done. Like mm-hmm. there are moments in Lost, and we'll talk about Lost a lot because it's on fresh in our minds. So listen to the weekly hijack. On <laughs> um, Lost, Sawyer in certain situations comes off as the debonair rogue. He's kind of fun, especially the long con. I remember being yep. an episode that I, you kind of enjoy. Seeing him, oh, wow, he really pulled one over on Jack and Locke. Those two blockheads are being kind of sticks in the mud, and he just orchestrated this thing around them. But then there's other situations where, like, uh, Sawyer, why do you, why are you acting like yeah, this? Yeah, and that, and I think 
it's interesting to me that that's one of those things that people are always like, even good lies in the sense that like, you know, oh, I have to keep the lie in order to protect someone. Yeah. That is always viewed as a burden, viewed as a almost a stain. On, like you're noble, but it's also a sorrow. You know, it's a, and I just think it's very interesting. Our culturally lies are still usually universally seen similar. You know, you can, you can have a murderer that's your hero. Uh-huh. It's hard to have a liar who's your hero. I mean, like you said, you can have this sort of half and half thing. Or your secret agents who go undercover. You know, yeah. undercover, there's a lot of lies involved in that. And it always has bad consequences. Like, you didn't tell me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, I mean, I'm well, Mission Impossible doesn't really dig into that kind of stuff. That's, that's just true. The, that's just the caper. Well, I guess I guess you're right. With spies, when if it's for the good, there's not... Okay, I guess there are certain situations in which the lies... But, I mean, oh, it, it depends. Even, like, you could also go... Into a show like Alias, where she is dealing with all kinds of lies and subterfuge and things yeah. like that. And then when certain things get revealed, then it's like her loved ones have to kind of deal with, well, okay, you have li- been living this completely different life that I didn't know anything yeah. about. But uh, it's for the good of the country. You're taking care of bad guys. I'm kind of mad at you, but I'm kind of also understanding where you're coming from. It's, yeah, it's it's still a thorny situation. And I think it is in some ways almost one of the easier ways to make drama because you instantly have ruined relationships, made things tense, had, again, it's so, I think why it's so important to the viewer and the reader is because it ruins relationships between your character you love yeah. and someone else. That it's like, you know, you didn't tell me my father was Darth Vader. Um <laughs> But it's just an interesting, of all the conflicts we talk about, you know, man versus man, man versus self, we don't talk about lie directly. I mean, it's inside there just because. It's an element. It's but- an element. And it can be abused. And like the, that story beat where it's like, you know, they've been keeping a secret because they have to. And like some of the friends like, I can't believe, I can't say believe anything you say anymore. And like, come on, guy. It's like, yeah, I, I know that the writer just needed to do this right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think at least I've said before, one of my storytelling pet peeves is when people, when drama is created just by people not talking to not talking to each other. And in some cases, it's not exactly a lie. It's just an omission. And I get it. It's something that people do in real life. I mean, we all have sometimes like, I'm a little afraid to say, you know, what I'm really thinking here, which is to a certain degree, that is healthy. You know, the yeah. James talks about the tongue being overflowing and it's good to control what you what you say and stuff. But at the same time, when not speaking is obviously creating as many, if not more, problems than actually saying something would. It's my famous, I just don't trust you anymore, Clark. <laughs> from, um, from, from Smallville. Smallville. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. here, a couple things then. Let's separate these out. Let's do omission. You're not lying, but you're not telling, telling all the, the truth. truth. Yeah. And then, like, the to protect you lie. And then, like, I just like doing it. <laughs> Or I use it as a tool. It's a tool to manipulate and have power over people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the omission is largely often in that sort of, um, I feel bad or someone get hurt if this gets said. Mm-hmm. Which is usually kind of the noble lie in some ways. Yeah. It's not even quite a lie. I feel like this, from an audience perspective, this can be one of the more frustrating ones. Because it's basically a ticking time bomb, but not in one that's like, 
suspenseful, more like it's almost just predictable. Like, mm-hmm. you know, at some point things are going to get uncovered. The characters are going to be mad at each other. Yeah. Like once upon a time, did this sort of thing <sighs> all the time. Yeah. And they really shouldn't have because they had to basically keep relearning the same lessons. So here's a question. So I like the idea of the ticking time bomb that it's really like, you know, the shoe's going to drop at some point. It's uh-huh. the Chekhov's gun of truth. Plot devices. Yeah. yeah. Information. Information. Yeah. It's an informational gun. Are there good uses of this? Obviously, it has been used so often, the same sort of rhythm that mo- normally we're like, Ugh. but I wonder, are there times when this makes sense? <sighs> I mean, for instance, I don't know if it makes sense because it's, it's a different sort of annoying, mm-hmm. but a lot of traditional, you know, Superman superheroes have this sort of oh, okay. ongoing secret identity. Secret identity. And again, in those cases, just sort of like, part of the game yeah and i guess that's what we were talking about with spies earlier and secret Mm -hmm. agents that's kind of a similar thing particularly if they have again it's a secret identity if if it's a case like a list i guess you can do it kind of well i mean you know it's so coming but it's pulled off differently i'm trying to remember exactly how it works in um the incredibles oh that he's basically you know that he should tell his wife yeah that's true but at least the way they write it you know it's coming it's going to be a drama but it doesn't come off quite as painfully like Let's get through this. Yeah. And I don't know why, if that's just because it's good writing or uh-huh. if there's something different. Hmm. That is an interesting question. It could be part because the character motivations, like on the one hand, Mr. Incredible is getting to relive his glory days and you understand his motivation. But at the same time, I wonder if it's also part because, you know, Mrs. Incredible is going to be able to handle it mm-hmm. when she finds out and they get thrust into danger and 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 they don't distrust each other it's not like we're it's not like they separate just like we need to work through this yeah maybe that maybe that's different that so so often the the response seems so out of proportion Mm, to the to to the relationships that already built up yeah i can see that i guess too probably the fact that they do it with such humor like when mrs incredible first finds out that that her husband is off in South America or something. She's distraught and crying. But rather than like making it super dramatic, you have Edna right there being like, oh, come on, pull yourself together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe the omission like that works if, as long as you know this is a worn story beat and you, and you play don't- with it. Play with it, but don't try to milk it too yes. much. I think maybe that's like they're trying to seep all the drama they possibly can out of it. And you're, and you're like, no, we know we know what this story beat is. Let's let's process it and just move on. Let's just move on. Yeah. Let's act like adults and keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because usually, usually in those situations, yes, it was not good for the person to admit that information, but there's probably more pressing concerns. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. How about the noble lie? The I did it to protect you. Okay. Let's see. What's... What's a good example here? Well, coming up in Lost, we're about to finish up season four. Uh, I think we get into why the Oceanic Six lied to nominally to protect the people on the island, which they wind up struggling with a lot, whether that was the right thing to do. I feel like the noble lie is normally a self-inflicted wound. Yeah. Like it does like the conflict is not against other people. The conflict is can I bear this secret? Yeah. Sometimes there might be blackmail involved. Like, you better keep this a secret or I'll hurt the ones you love. That's true. You know, Which is similar but different. You know, actually, this kind of applies, though we're not sure exactly how yet, with WandaVision. Oh, that's because, interesting. I mean, the entire thing's a lie that Vision doesn't know, for one. Yeah. And anyone else, for that matter. And honestly, the last episode, I'm 
still a little uncertain if Wanda is really the only one behind all this stuff. Yeah. It feels to me that there might be someone else, something else going mm-hmm. on, another layer here somewhere. Uh, but by the time this episode comes out, we may know more. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> As of this episode, we have seen five episodes, I believe. I guess. Last one was... Um, It'd be those three episodes, then we got Rambo, and then the one after that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Five. But like, I think as a creator, this sort of self-inflicted wound can can be well done because it gives you, first of all, a motivation. And then you you tend to empathize with the main character as long as it was for something like legitimately like good not like some dumb reason they're keeping the lie right right yeah i concur that's uh i'm trying to think of other good examples here but yeah it seems like there's ones where like oh, i couldn't tell you that your father or i couldn't tell you i didn't want to hurt you so i didn't yeah i can't think of them offhand what would you classify the um the tahiti protocol from Oh, Shield. Agents of Shield. Yeah, is that, is that the one basically did not let Coulson know how that, that he had died and come back, basically, or how he had come back? Yeah, um, hmm, that's a tricky. That, that was basically a um, Nick Fury. I'm not telling you because because it will destroy you. you. <laughs> yeah, basically, you're trying to suppress memories that you really don't want to relive. Yeah. Yeah, that that one's kind of in the middle ground. I, I feel like like it is noble in some ways, but it's also like. You're basically taking a choice out of someone else's hands, and they wind up trying to figure that out that mystery anyway. I guess it's an interesting thing with the with the um, the noble lie. Sometimes it's the main character doing the lie and dealing with the guilt or whatever. Mm-hmm. But sometimes then the main character is one who has been lied to. Yeah, and then they get like, "My whole life's a lie. You didn't tell me that." I don't know why I can't think of one right now, but. <laughs> Well, let's see. Yeah. What's another story where they're trying to uncover? Well, I mean, I guess, again, detective things like, say, the Pelican Brief, where they're trying to uncover a a massive conspiracy sort of thing. Or I suppose um, to bring, since we talked about Valon 5, when Delenn lied to Jakar about certain things. Oh. And then he realized that. And that was a really good character moment because the repercussions of the of the hiding the truth, which was made sense at the time, mm-hmm. were legitimate and deep yeah. between friends. That's a lie when I that I don't know for certain if the audience would be that cognizant of, or it was really more of an omission, I want to say. Yeah. The, the, there was information that she didn't say and it wound up costing lives, but if she had said it earlier, it would have cost even more lives. Mm-hmm. And people might have put that together before the actual episode, particularly Babylon 5 fans who are really (laughs) like to dissect things. But I don't remember that it was a main story point until later. And you realize, oh, yeah. And when she confesses, she has to tell, confess it to Jakar eventually because they need to work this out and get him on their side. Well, I I suppose in the more obvious one, when Lando doesn't tell Jakar that basically he... What he knew, yeah, about destroying his whole planet. I mean, he was the cause of. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's there's nothing noble about that. No, not that one. That's just (laughs) that's just subterfuge. So that's the third. Like, I'm lying because I need power, control, Mm -hmm. etc. Now, in Lost, it's a particularly frustrating thing when it comes to Mister Benjamin Linus. Ah, of all the liars in Lost, or on I've ever seen on any show ever. He is the king. Yes, he is the uh, the prince of lies in some way. Actually, side thought: my pastor once pointed out that uh, you know, Jesus called Satan the father of lies, and that when he lies, he speaks his native language. So he would sometimes tell his kid, "Now, 
if you're lying, who does that make you a child of yep, that moment? That's true. You want to be a child of God who is of the truth or child of the devil who is of lies? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that cuts again to that whole idea of like hiding the truth is against the very fabric of the world. We want there to be truth and want there to be understanding, which is why the web of lies that Ben Linus weaves around the, the so island frustrating. is so frustrating because it's, it makes it very hard to untangle some of his motivations, some of what's actually going on the island. And like good lies, there's half truth in them. Yes, yes. There's because a lie is stronger by weaving mm-hmm. actual elements because it's, it's not just something that's blatantly obvious. It's like, well, is this the way it is? I don't know, because some of it seems, some of it is accurate. Now, it does make great drama in the sense that, like, you're constantly like, what's going on? Yeah. Do I trust him? Why do I hate him so much? Sort yes. of thing. And Ben's not the only character that does this. Yeah, locked up. I mean, almost every character does it to a certain extent. Well, I don't even mean just on on Lost, you know, you say person of interest. Oh, yeah. There's moments there you're like, okay, do I trust this character? Okay, was Greer lying there or was that the actual, you know? And and most uh, mysteries have some person who's like, have you seen Knives Out? Yes. Okay, there's a person who's keeping the the lie, the, uh-huh. the main character. Yeah. And it's hard to know whether it's for a good reason or not. Uh-huh. Um, it's understandable. It's understandable. Sure. And that makes, and that ramps the drama up because mm-hmm. it's when it's going to be found out. Yes. And the fact that she vomits every time she tells, she lies <laughs> is also fun. Yeah. I do feel the plot where you're constantly trying to figure out what the truth is can be a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, like, again, in mysteries, that's fun. That's kind of part of the appeal of trying to... And there will be a complete answer at the end. And there will be a complete answer at the end. Like in the Ace Attorney games, you're trying to badger the witness, trying to figure out, okay, where is the lie and what they're and what they're trying to say, and basically keep hammering away at them the truth until they spill the beans. And, and there's a sense of, you know, there's a logic... That you can you can be like, no, you can find it out. Right. It's not just arbitrary or like you don't have enough info. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something very satisfying, I think almost subconsciously in finding the truth. Right. The danger is when you get your audience questioning every single fact so yeah. minutely that you, you start spinning into the realm of conspiracy theories. Yes. Yeah. Because the audience has been told so many lies about what's going on that they won't accept the the true elements that you're trying to make more plain. Mm-hmm. And they'll be just like, well, what does that really mean? What well, no, no, this is what it means, guys. But no, it can't mean because you lied to us about that other thing. Well, and the, I mean, do transposition to real life. I think that's why there's a rise in belief in conspiracy theories. Because there have been so many times you were like, can I actually trust? Yeah. Can I trust the media? Can I trust this politician? So, so, so suddenly you start believing things that no person should really believe leave Mm -hmm. but there's just enough doubt that i guess the problem is if you use lies so much that doubt becomes the main way of reading or or processing your information from your story Mm -hmm. you've probably gone too far yeah because doubt cannot be a foundation Mm -hmm. i mean kind of in a postmodern mindset doubt kind of is yeah but it's not what we were meant to view life as or or good stories yeah. And as we've been going through the latter half of Lost, we've been recording season four. It's mm-hmm. going to, it's going to, I think the first episodes will be out before this episode. But we've kind of already been wrestling with a little bit of that because what Ben says and then what the ri- the writers might decide to do something else later anyway, because mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes Lost writers did retcon things. Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember yeah. seeing a story where the Damon Lindelof would be like, we'll go with that until someone comes up with something better yeah. as a reason for something. So there's a certain amount of that, but. 
again, that building up that tension of doubt and then that unsatisfaction. Because Lost never liked to give, for the most part, they tend to stay away from straightforward answers. It's pretty postmodern and it's not wanting to have a foundation. Which is a strength and weakness of the show. Yes. In one way, that's doing what it set out to do, but in other ways, there are certain things about it that are very unsatisfying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So let's... I think it's not worth talking about lies until I think it's worth also talking about truth real quick. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've noticed, and probably I think I mentioned this a long time ago on the podcast, you read old stories, especially, but even newer stories, you know, your noble characters, if they say something, they're doing it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, breaking your word is like almost anathema. Uh-huh. And I think that idea that words spoken mean something, again, we all feel it anyways. That's why people have reactions to liars in real life and in stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the opposite, the fact that the, uh, the person you can always trust is something you don't see very often. Mm. And it's kind of unfortunate because we're very good about creating the drama through the person who is false sometimes. Yeah. And again, that's, you know, a very modern sort of thing. But to have the, those characters that are always true. I mean, there's a couple, you know, you always like to talk about the, the really good hero. Yeah, but the problem is even in modern culture, it seems like any time that you try one of those heroes, it's automatically shrouded by suspicion. Mm-hmm. Like Superman immediately has these questions, gets questioned like, well, what would he do if he turned evil? What if he turned this power against us? It seems to be that in a lot of modern superhero stories, like can we trust him to actually be a good person? Yeah. Um, same with the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you constantly got unit that's questioning him and... Torchwood or whoever. Yeah. But Torchwood, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Torchwood's got its own problems. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we don't we don't trust people that much. No. I There's... mean, we always have a little anything both as consumers re- watching stories mm-hmm. and also just real life. We always have a little bit of suspicion that something eventually people always fudge. Mm. Um and I think you could be a really counterculture by having a character that never does. Yeah. That always says I mean, in some ways, this is Obed. Mm. His is more like he does what he says, but he confuses people because he does what he says. <laughs> uh-huh. And even if it's like insane, like, oh, yeah, I, I got to go give this coin back. Like, why? Like, why are you going to go do that? Obed is a character from Nick's book, The Unremarkable oh, Squire. Yeah, I, I guess I assume you've been listening for the last 115 episodes, guys. <laughs> but in case you have, had forgotten, it's one of Nick's characters from a book that needs to be republished at some point. Yes, and it does. So, and I think there's just something could be something powerful in in having that person who, again i guess this is the power done well in dc comics of the lasso of truth oh yeah wonder woman yeah yeah that's that's true i mean it's it's definitely a unique ability the the automatic truth detector but also just some of the things that you can you can explore with that mm-hmm. and the power of okay what is really true here yeah yeah that's a, that's a good point they brought that up a little bit in One Woman 84. They did. But not not directly. Not directly. But, I mean, it, it was a nice subplot. Yeah. Or they used it in an interesting way. I mean, that's in some ways, I kind of think that's one of the things that people didn't latch on to with Wonder Woman 84 because they really leaned more into some of the magical, mystical ideas and the philosophy behind those in some ways than maybe they were expecting. I don't know. That's just a theory of mine. I liked Wonder Woman 84. I, I enjoyed it. I know some people thought it was super cheesy or yeah. whatever. But. but we our culture nowadays sometimes is so fixated on being broken mm-hmm. um the broken individual like 
I think feel like this could be an interesting subtopic that's like related to what we've talked about before. The scale between the ideal and the I, the hero that you that's an ideal and the hero that you identify with, mm-hmm. because sometimes those seem to be on opposite ends of a spectrum. I don't know whether they should be, but I guess we're getting off topic. Yeah, we should talk. We should talk about that sometime or previously on, <laughs> um, if it's close enough. Any more notes about lies and truth? I mean, yeah, this is this is a big deal in our culture, and it, it makes sense why it should be looked at more closely in our stories. I mean, fake news has been the catchphrase of the mm-hmm. last decade, essentially, yeah. Yeah. it feels like. And sometimes we're flippant with it in our stories. We're like, oh, we'll just have them lie or not lie. I mean, again, we've been watching Lost. Many times they use it very effectively as their cons and everything. is. That's just sort of, I mean, the entire season four is basically a lie. I mean, the flash forwards. Oh, okay. You know, they're all like, they're lying about who, you know, they're back. How they got rescued. Who's Aaron's mom really is, you know, Uh all this sort of stuff. And it can be used very effectively just for pure kind of pulpy sort of mystery mystery sort of stuff. Subterfuge. But I I think a creator could use it really. So in Strinfred book three, which none of you have read because it's not out. (laughs) But um, Soldano's this thief and he's just... To me, he's the most evil character in the books right now, just because he purposely tries to lead people into untruth. Like, mm. that's his his goal. Uh-huh. And he does it in really friendly ways. Yeah. And I think examining the sort of ways that we are misled and the sort of ways that, you know, maybe we don't need to be could could be interesting kind of subtext for stories. Yeah. It's the sort of thing that, Gets explored a lot in, again, mysteries, conspiracy stories, the struggle to uncover the truth. But it's, it is interesting to see it in a show that's at least nominally about other things, mm-hmm. like like Lost. Yeah. It's also a little frustrating, the fact that you feel like you're constantly digging through veils, trying to find yeah. the actual core and not ever getting to one. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's an important element to consider. I don't remember know where I was going with that. <laughs> I guess last thing, you know, a really good book that I thought think kind of shows how lies can sort of just something I say sometimes is there are so many lies just in normal life. We don't as a Christian, I need the Bible to realize how does the world really work? Because we're always being bombarded with how people say it does or how we want it to. Yeah. But like having just taught this year um, Animal Farm, I mean, that's a, a book where they start with this idea of a utopia and they're just the animals are just constantly history's constantly rewritten. They're like they forget even what mm. actually happened in the past mm-hmm. because the propaganda has rewritten their memories oh. um, so often. And so uh-huh. they're like, oh well, this is not what we really wanted. Or the commandment used to say this, I think, but no, it must say this now. And I think that subtle, insidious aspect of lie. Which makes you really mad reading Animal Farm. Uh-huh. Um, and it should make you mad. I think, you know, lies that don't have an emotional response are maybe dangerous. Well, and that that's almost like a whole other category of itself. The the lies that permeate a society yeah. in Animal Farm. I was thinking just earlier today about the movie Swing Kids, which is kind of a cult classic, I guess. It's from early 90s, I want to say. The cover makes you think it's like a... Uh, Newsies in uh, Nazi Germany because <laughs> it's about teenagers in underground swing clubs mm-hmm. before Nazis were really cracking down. But they were like, they were like, it was the uh, anti-establishment teenager kind of angst. But yeah. we're we're gonna go into American jazz and swing. That's gonna be our music. 
two of the main characters get forced into the Hitler Youth at some point, and one of them starts drinking the Kool Aid basically. Yeah. yeah. And even before then, you could tell they don't have a real strong moral foundation. They're almost just rebelling because teenage rebellion more yeah. than like actual concern for Jewish people. Yeah. There's a scene where they find a Jewish kid getting bullied and they didn't realize it was a Jewish kid at first. And when they realize they're like, uh, oh, because they don't know what to do with that. Yeah. For me, the movie was always kind of a reminder of if you don't have a moral foundation in something, if you're get, just getting pushed along by the whims of culture, mm-hmm. yeah, anyone could fall into the Nazi way of thinking because that's the lies that you're constantly yeah. surrounded with. And when your culture is surrounded by a web of lies, it can be very hard for some people to discover the truth. I, and I think, yeah, I think that is the final one that we hadn't talked about that can be very impactful. And sometimes they use it in more of a, like a, shock revelation sort of way, like, what, Soylent Green is people? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it can also be, yeah, really eye-opening or kind of um, point the finger at back at the culture. You're like, yeah. oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, you always talk about the lie of uh, the Dark Knight. Oh. Uh-huh. You know, that's like a one that the whole culture is trying to drink because maybe that might not apply here. Well, I mean, maybe the, we'll- the thing that bugged me, yeah, the ending of the Dark Knight was that Batman and the police basically did what the Joker was taunting them that they would be doing, basically mm-hmm. just come up with a lie to make a better truth. And I was like, you're doing exactly what he said. And that super bugged and me. And then Dark Knight Rises is all about the truth. Yeah. On, on lots of levels. Which was one of the things, I, I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, one of the things I liked about it, like they uncover the consequences of doing that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something for, a, at least for, I would re- recommend for creators, is like, look, if you're going to do lies, deal with the consequences. And not just in a, oh, I can't trust you anymore. Yeah. But, I mean, because, yeah, like I said, that's a lame thing we've dealt with before. But I think there are other ways you can deal with the consequences of lies, whether it's its effects on society, how your how populace is able to distinguish between truth mm-hmm. and lies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. All right. Anyway, there's a lot of food for thought for y'all. Yes. But now let's ease your wearied brains with some soundtrack. So I mentioned Ace Attorney Phoenix Wrights earlier today. Uh, Janelle and I are currently going through that. We're kind of playing that together, which has been fun. She's reading the female voices. I'm reading the male voices. If you're not familiar with it, it's basically a video game that's Law & Order in an anime style. (laughs) There's a whole series of it. I think we talked about the Miles Edgeworth game at some point. But anyway, this song is called Objection Funk. I think it is a remix from one of the songs, although the YouTuber who did this didn't really have a, a, a game listing, so I'm just assuming it's from a Phoenix Wright game. But anyway, it's called Objection Funk. It's by I Teach Vader. <laughs> nice. On YouTube. It's pretty fun. Enjoy. Objection! Take that! 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 Take that!
Our sponsor this month is Ask Your Doctor Before Filming, an exciting in-depth podcast that goes behind the scenes to dive deep into the creative process of directing both new and classic prescription medicine commercials. No interviewer, no advertisers, just a microphone and a different director each week telling the story of creation and inspiration in his own words. Listen to this short clip from the most recent episode, which features director Bertrand Alfonso discussing his liberating experience filming the one-minute commercial for Zamzanifel. The first thing that really struck me was the freedom I had now. Been doing all these arthritis commercials up till then. It was always the same beat. Sad cartoon person watching other happy cartoon person run and jump and fly kites. I'd linger on their red joints and their sad sack faces while the narrator listed off their side effects. I felt like I had no range anymore. My camera movements were stiff. My career wasn't moving. I was stuck. I needed to flex to stretch myself. But I felt like there was no way out. Other directors were getting gigs with antidepressants and anti-deficit pills. I was being left behind. Then came Zamzonafall. Oh, it was my first prescription laxative gig. My creative juices started flowing. Like that, my mental block disappeared. In a flood, one idea after another came. I used up all the paper in my office, scribbling and storyboarding. It was a brand new day. For more episodes of Ask Your Doctor Before Filming, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Try it out and see if Ask Your Doctor Before Filming is right for you. Welcome back to Derailed Trains of Thoughts. Hello, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, um, the Kuka clocks went off, and I guess it's time to do our next section here. Our next section, yeah. We've had some music. We've had our sponsorship. I guess it's time for a bit of story. Tim. Yes. We haven't done an a update lately, but let me do a quick one. Yes. I guess this is a project update slash a bit of story. So many moons ago, our friend Nathan and our friend Aaron and I wrote this barbarian story called Sorzum, or that's what we called it for many years. Yes. I think you have mentioned this, but it's been several months since I think we talked about that it was... You were originally going to go with one publisher, but... Um, oh, yes, that's true. And it fell through. And it fell through, but now you have another one? Yes. And so, Sorzum and The God Who Devours is now published. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. ebook and print book. It is for the low, low price of 99 cents, if you have a Kindle. Um, and for the still low price of, like, 550 print. Oh, for the Amazon. paperback. Yeah. Cool, cool. So... Obviously, you should buy it just because you listen to this podcast. <laughs> but um, if you need more... Well, what kind of story is Zorzum and the God Who Devours? It is largely a Victorian... No. <laughs> <laughs> a Victorian drama in the spirit of Charles Dickens himself. No, it is, it is basically... I mean, we, we talk about it as being kind of a mix between Conan and Tarzan. Um, a very action, Barbari pulpy, barbarian... Barbarian sword and sorcery kind of story. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, and we have asked one of the co-writers for it and one of our 
uh, longtime contributors and friends and listeners, Nathan Marchand, host of the Monster Island Film Vault, uh-huh. to read us the first chapter. All right. Take it away, Nate. Zorzum and the God Who Devours by Nick Hayden, Nathan Marchand, and Aaron Brosman. Chapter 1, The Land of the White Death. Dawn was coming to Skizlag, the land of the White Death. The pale tubers withdrew into their holes and crevices as the first gray rays of the sun touched the barren landscape. Bleached bones lay discarded across the rock slabs that thrust out from the ground at odd angles. A fresh carcass, large patches of torn skin and tissue covered in blood, marred Skizlag with its color. It had been a thunder lizard, one of those great reptiles from the southern plains whose steps shake the ground and move the earth. Until last night, it feared none but the most savage of its brothers. As the sun struggled over the horizon, red flames of light smoldered on the dry bones and jagged ground. The thunder lizard glistened wet crimson. It shuddered. A tear formed across its protruded belly, which had been left nearly untouched by the tubers in their indiscriminate feast. Wet, bloody hair emerged. A man, shining in fluids, crawled forth from the opening and crouched, tense, expectant. His long hair hung around him. His powerful legs, like a lion's, waited to pounce. His large hands flexed, ready to grab and choke and tear. His black eyes scanned the dead land. Above, carrion eaters circled. Not for the thunder lizard, for even carrion eaters did not share meat with the tubers. They circled for him. Seeing that nothing moved on the ground, the man rose and turned to the thunder lizard. His face, flat, darkened, broad-featured, looked long at the creature that had been his companion and steed in this dread land. He grabbed the large, half-eaten head with his hands, raised his eyes to the sky, and bellowed at the leaden sheet above. Then, after pressing his face against the skull in respect, he continued his journey. He clambered swiftly over the slag, bones, and broken rocks, watching his step, scanning the sky. The carrion eaters followed. The sun had risen above the rim of the world. Its crimson fire died out, became like the smoke of an extinguished flame. It rose like a blind eye and hung in the sky. The frail twilight lit skizleg in dimness and blurred the sharp lines of the land. The man traveled hour by hour, driven by the vision that had visited him, stopping neither for food nor drink nor rest. The cracked, parched land was splintered into a disarray of sharp edges, like a sheet of ice shattered upon the ground. He climbed the protrusions and descended with reckless grace, dropping to a crouch and springing up again without a moment of rest. The further he went, heaving himself, sprinting forward, leaping from one foothold to another, the more the space between the upheaved land fell away into dark crevices. 
He launched himself over the large chasms, catching himself on the far side and muscling his body onto the next ledge. As the riven landscape grew more fractured, hills of discarded boulders rose to block him. He picked his way up, moving from handhold to handhold, leaping down the other side with deft movements of a mountain goat. The air lay thick and still about him. The sun, though dim, baked the land. He glistened with sweat. He stopped. On top of one of these crumbled mountains, he stood erect and placed his hand above his eyes. Beyond the sun-bleached land, he caught the pale shadows of something immense, an echo of what he pursued. He gazed long to ensure the sight was not an illusion. Satisfied, he continued forward at the same relentless pace. The hills gave way to a maze of passages sunk into the stone as if a giant hand had drawn lines in the rock with its finger. Some of these ravines ran so shallow that a man could stand in them and rest his arms on the upper ledge. Others sank until the sky remained only a white worm overhead. Passages crisscrossed, rose, sank, and turned at sudden angles. Here the man pressed forward toward the sight he had seen. When a ravine veered, he continued forward, scaling walls and climbing down again when necessary. Fine, translucent hair covered some of the walls. It swayed hypnotically in the still air, pulsing as if with a heartbeat. He used it to ascend and descend. His hands and skin burned afterward. The light began to grow faint. From the top of one of the crevices, he saw the sun sinking toward the far horizon from whence he had come. He remembered for a moment the trees he had left behind, the cave in the mountains where he slept, his days of killing, eating, sleeping. He glanced upward. The carrion eaters were gone. For a time, he made progress above the deep trenches, jumping narrow chasms. With bleeding hands sliced minutely again and again by the fine hair of the chasms, he lowered himself into one too wide for crossing. At the bottom, he stopped, listening. A rustle grew in the heavy stillness. In the cracks and splinters of the wall, he could hear the wriggling of tubers. He hurried up the rough rock face. The sound followed as he ran along the surface, as if the creatures tunneled through the stone beneath him. He ran along the shallow trench, the murmur becoming a babble. Twilight deepened. The sun touched the horizon. A new sound joined the hungry muttering beneath his feet. Stopping, he scanned the sky. The buzz echoed in the shattered land pierced his ears, rose to a roar, a great distant screech. He ducked. A giant insect swept over his head and hung a moment motionless in the air. Its body gleamed with a phantom's translucence. The wings beat like a river's rapids. Its stinger throbbed with pleasure. Its many eyes swiveled to study him. The man seized a rock. As the insect dove, he hurled it. 
The insect dodged fluidly, so low and quick that though the man spread face first on the ground, the stinger carved a gash into his back. Rolling, he grasped another stone and hurled it at the insect as it turned. This tore a gash in one wing. Flailing in the air, the translucent body darkened to opaque. The livid lines throbbed in jagged paths to converge at the stinger. The man took a gulp of air just in time. Milky fumes covered him. He closed his eyes as they began to burn. He scrambled along the ground. The rumble of wings followed. It knew where he was and waited for him to succumb to the poison. His hands found the rim of a trench. Quickly, he began to descend into the gloom below, where no light reached. The cloud of gas blocked the remains of the day, but it did not descend into the darkness. He took a deep breath. He sensed it the instant before it struck. The tuber shot from the wall like a viper, its senseless maw chomping down where the warrior's hand had been. He clung to the wall with his other. The cliff seemed to writhe as the tubers emerged like monstrous maggots from their many holes. Their pale, sunless bodies showed themselves in all but pitch darkness. Night had come. The warrior changed hand and footholds rapidly to escape the voracious jaws. His injured hands left blood on the stone face. The tubers greedily sucked it clean. Below, the floor seethed and slithered, twisted and turned. But the insect, its angry buzz hovering above, had not forgotten its prey. It dove into the pit, breaking subtly through its inky discharge. Its stinger aimed for him. Roaring, the warrior pushed off from the wall and grabbed hold of the insect's lowest legs, his one hand gripping firmly between the sharp spines. The insect plummeted beneath his weight, and the man raised his legs as he fell toward the thrashing floor. Tubers raised their bodies, poised by immense muscles, and swayed in anticipation. The warrior kicked them away once, twice, three times, his body hovering six feet from the bottom. The insect recovered and began to climb. As it flew upward, the man grasped a higher joint of the leg and pulled himself up. The insect flew side to side to shake him off, but the walls of the ravine limited its maneuvers. Dozens of tubers propelled themselves from the walls to catch hold of him. He dodged as he was able, and they rolled off the insect's body. But one sank its teeth into the insect and did not release. With this, the insect shot into the air, carrying man and tuber out of the ravine, into the night sky. None of the stars shone. The moon was an eyeless socket. The flying creature careened, and the man hung tight with gritted teeth and taut muscles. He would not let go, not until he landed safely or the insect fell from the sky, dead. He did not think. Like any beast, he acted and reacted, and he never doubted or wavered. Looking down at the darkened land below, he saw that the labyrinthine plains had given way to a desert of white sand, and from the desert rose the ivory walls he pursued. 
hundreds of feet in the air. The man approached his destination by the wild veering of an insect in pain. But the tuber now pierced into the flesh beneath the exoskeleton. The insect turned aside, lurched, fell, rose unsteadily. Holding to his precarious grip by one hand, the man stretched out the other and grabbed the base of the insect's stinger. Tightening his huge arms, he drew them together, forcing the leg and stinger to give way beneath the pressure of his strength. The leg moved first, giving the man better leverage with the stinger. He drew his arms together again, slowly. He roared, his body throbbing with vigor and incredible vitality. The stinger snapped off at the base. The warrior, wielding it as a weapon, thrust it deep into the insect, pulled it out, and thrust again. The winged beast descended rapidly beneath the blows, wings fluttering. The white sand rushed up. The man released his grip at the last moment, rolled, and lay still in the sand. He jumped to his feet, crouched warily. The insect's body lay twitching nearby. The tuber sucked at its exposed innards. Picking up the stinger from where it had landed, the man thrust it through the tuber, pitting it to the insect's body. Two vile creatures would perish together. He stopped, grabbed a handful of sand, and rubbed it between his fingers. It brought to mind the fire that had raged through the forest. The dead bodies of trees felt like this, gray and thin and dry. He took stock of his location. He saw the white walls in the distance and started toward them. Nothing moved. With long strides, he crossed the desert where nothing lived. He would not stop until he reached those walls. The walls that he had seen in his dreams. The walls that led into darkness. All right. I, I remember writing that back. I was camping and writing that in a tent on a... On a notepad? On a notepad. And I, I, I liked it at the time, and I still like it. Cool, cool. That was back before you had any kids, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Wow. It was probably a long time ago when the rough draft was done. When the rough draft was done. Cool. So check it out. I'm looking forward to it. I haven't read this, this story in over 10 years. And it's been revised substantially since then. Yeah, because so. you kind of went through it and, and put it all kind of in the same style. Yes. So, yeah, it's three authors came up with it, but it's been edited into one style, so you won't know where it splits up. Okay. Cool. I look forward to, to diving back into that world. It's very unique. Yes, it's fun. <laughs> I don't know a whole lot about sword and sorcery, but I enjoy the book. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay. <laughs> I don't know that you should admit that, but you know. Okay, Nick, for our next segment, I thought we should tackle another... Challenge accepted. So who are we challenging? 
I am challenging you, Nick. Ooh, we're gonna challenge accepted. <laughs> we're gonna play a quick game of two truths and a lie. Okay, which is a classic. And I just thought when we were talking about lies, you know, this is a games are an interesting venue for lies. Speaking of how they can be both fun or frustrating, mm-hmm. um, like in a game, resistance, resistance <laughs> can be either. Those games like Resistance or Werewolves. Sometimes I have a good time. Other times I just walk away, kind of annoyed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Brianna won't play with Zach because <laughs> <laughs> she won't play with her husband. Is well, he... I, I think she will now, but it, it'll really frustrate her sometimes. He'll just lie, and <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, there's there's this version of Monopoly that's called Cheaters Monopoly. I've heard of it. I was looking at Amazon reviews recently, and apparently, like some people are like, yeah, this is a lot of fun. And other people are like, do not play this game. <laughs> Our family will never be the same. <laughs> But anyway, but two truths and lie, you've probably heard this before. Uh, the way we're doing this, of course, I've got it story-themed. Ooh, really? Surprise. Yes. So each set of two truths and a lie here will be from uh, some story thing, and two of them are from that property, and one is not. Oh, so, okay, I got to guess which one is not part, which one is not like the others. Not part of that category. Correct. Okay. So, for example, our first category here is... Muppet Show acts. Oh, okay. So acts that were that were done on the Muppet Show. Which, speaking of, the Muppet Show five seasons on Disney Plus coming out on February nineteenth. Dun dun dun. Our podcast is not just about plugging other streaming services, but obviously I'm a huge Muppet fan, so I'm very excited because there's like forty episodes <laughs> or so that I haven't actually seen of my favorite TV show. So you know, Tim, we need to get a sponsor from Muppet some one of these times. Oh man, you know that would that would be a dream come true. Actually, no, not just a sponsorship. We should get an interview from one of the Muppets. Oh, we should do it. Uh, if only. But anyway, here are the names for you. Okay. We have Lubbock Lou's Jug Huggers, Jerry and the Atrix, and Snorter McPhail and his Snora Snort Band. Hmm. Which of those was not on the Muppet Show? All of them sound like they could have been on the Muppet Show. <laughs> yes. Okay, so give me the first one again. We have Lubbock Lou's Jug Huggers. Jug Huggers, okay. Jerry and the Atrix. The Atrix? Yeah, Jerry and the Atrix. And the Atrix, okay. And Sn- Oh, Jerry, uh, I know, I've seen that one. I'm pretty sure. And okay. Snorter McPhail and his Snora Snort Band. Ugh. I think it's one or three, which obviously it's not that good. But, <laughs> um, it's like, we'd like to make a deal. <laughs> I'm going to say three is false. You are correct. Yes. That is not from The Muppet Show. That is from a Dr. Seuss book. Oh, okay. Dr. Seuss's sleep book. So I was. I have the sleep book. Maybe that's why it rang familiar. Oh, okay. Interesting. It's a a fun book. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with this. Uh, I was able to put this together thanks to the use of several wikis online, which is a great way to hunt down obscure trivia and stuff. And so, the, like I said, the idea is the false entry will lead us into our next category Ooh, each time. Oh, nice. So, so I got one point. You got one point. So next category is Dr. Seuss names. Okay. So we have Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell, okay. Trongus Squim, and Funa Laguna Babuna. I'm going to say number two is not one. Okay, so you believe Trongus Squim is not a Dr. Seuss name? Uh, yeah, I mean... Yes, I'm going to go with that. You are correct. Yes! That is a character from a Doctor Who comic. Oh, now, real quick. Where are the first and third ones from? Okay, Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell Dodell is from On Beyond Zebra. Oh, I don't even know that one. Which okay. I don't think I've read. And uh, Funa Laguna Babuna, which is just fun to say, yeah. is also from the Doctor Seuss's sleep book. Okay. 
So that one, why it sounds familiar. And there's a certain rhythm and cadence to them that like yeah. felt very. And but I wasn't sure if two was right. But I'm like, is it too obvious? Not? <laughs> but when you read it out loud, I'm like, the other two sound very Seussian. Yeah, I actually found it. I thought it'd be a little easier to find uh, Doctor Seussian sounding Doctor Who name, but actually most Doctor Who names sound a lot more alien. Alien and, and weird. Less, less whimsical. I guess you could find another Muppet name to sound like a Doctor Seuss. I, gu- <laughs> I guess, but once I had the idea no of like each one to lead, I had yeah. to go with it. So anyway, you're two for two now. All right, I'm All right. on my way. So we're going from Doctor Seuss to Doctor Who, and these are Doctor Who species. Oh, oh okay. Except one of them is not. Oh, okay. Okay, so here we go. We have Hazudians, Vespiforms, and Celestians. Maybe it's Celestins. Celestins? It must be Celestins. Uh, then that one's the wrong one. That is Nieb Nub right there from Star Wars. Yes, very good. I thought you might get that one. Yep. When I read Twilight Company, they have they go to Solistan. And so uh, there's a whole... I, it was in my brain. Okay, gotcha. For those of you who aren't Star Wars geeks, Nieb Nub is the name of uh, Lando Calrissian's co-pilot in Return of the Jedi. Who doesn't know that? Only you know. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what were the other two? What were the first two? Uh, Hazudians. Hazudians. Who, do you know the, which the, one those are? They're from a, a short story, a Doctor okay. short story, ve- so not very, not very famous at all. Two sound familiar, the second one. Uh, the Vespiforms, that is from one of the TV episode, the one with uh, the giant wasps. Uh, it's with... Oh, okay, it's, with, uh, with, it's um, with Agatha Donna, Christie. Yeah, Agatha Christie, it's a Donna episode, Donna and Tenth Doctor. Man, it's been a while, long time since I've seen any of those. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Star Wars takes us to, we got some Star Wars characters here. Okay, okay, there's a lot of crazy names here. All right, so here we go, we got... Talon Gendro, Cad Bane, and Cami Marstrap. Oh, trap. It's not two. I'm pretty sure he's from Clone Wars. Um, give me the first and third again. Talon Gendro and Cami Marstrap. I'm going to say three is incorrect. Uh, oh, my first loss. Your no. first loss. No, Cami Marstrap is one of Luke's friends on Tatooine. Really? Yes. I didn't know he had friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, okay. It's from the deleted scenes from A New Hope, but I guess they also canonized her. Some, in like a comic or something. In something. They're his friends from Tashi Station. Tashi Station. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. So awesome. Talon Jindro is actually the name of someone who, who wrote a female. From Homestar oh. Runner. <laughs> That's fabulous. With Strong Bad actually. That sounds super Star Warsy. And Strong Bad actually like makes fun of like the what did George Lucas come up with your name? <laughs> That's fabulous. Okay, I, I'm glad to be wrong on that one. <laughs> okay, so uh, Strong Bad takes us to our next category: companies from Homestar Runner. Oh boy, Homestar Runner Electrics. Yeah, like Vita. Obviously, yeah, Vita Electrics is a pretty famous one. But Blubbos. <laughs> so, all right. So here are some other companies. Styles upon styles, metalmation, and box squared. <laughs> Which one of those is not from Homestar Runner? Uh, styles and ball and styles sounds very Homestar Runnery to me. Just I don't know why it just does. Uh-huh. Metal Matrix, what? Metalmation, Metalmation, and box, box squared. squared. Yes. <sighs> oh, um, box squared. See now I'm trying to think what else could they be from? But I don't even know. I don't even know what animation <laughs> box squared. See my gut reaction is box squared is not one. So I'm just gonna go with my gut, and I might be wrong. So you're saying animation is is the lie? No, no, I'm saying box squared is the lie. That's oh, my gut box reaction. square is the lie. Yes, you are correct. Yes. So uh, where is metalmation from? Metalmation made the limousine cartoon. <laughs> 
<laughs> Metal Mission. Okay. <laughs> that is fabulous. And Stars Born uh, Styles is... Is a clothing manufacturer. I think they use for a couple... Okay. Like, sponsors for their I'm different TV shows. Stuntman. Yeah. Box. Pistols for pandas. <laughs> <laughs> I love pistols for pandas. Box Squared is actually from Lost. It's the box company that Locke works for. Is that the Lost company? Oh, okay. Fabulous. (laughs) Fabulous. Okay. So for our Lost category, these are book references uh, that that are featured in Lost. Oh, right. Specifically books that somebody read Read. during the course of Lost. So we've seen the cover at some point. Yes. It's not like um, Bad Twin or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or it's not like there were some listings on Lostpedia where it's like, this was on Ben's bookshelf. Oh, yeah. No, it has to be something someone actually read. All right. So our titles are... Valis, iRobots, and Harun and the Sea of Stories. Oh, this one's easy. Okay, so Valis, <laughs> they're reading season four. Uh-huh. And Harun and the Sea of Stories, I believe someone's reading at the beginning of episode one of season six. Okay. I only know that because then I went and read Harun and the Sea of Stories, and it's a fabulous book by Salman Rushdie. Oh, okay. See, I forgot that you had read that. I was... that's, that's a good one. And no, Seriously, very good book. But it's interesting because there's a plug in the ocean they pull out, and all the stories on Hope Leaves or whatever, it's oh. as reference to season six. Okay. So it would have to be iRobot. You are correct. Yes. Nice job. So I didn't mean to give a dissertation. <laughs> I feel <laughs> super nerdy now. But. No, well done. Well done. I don't think they read the book, but iRobot is a reference in the title of an episode in Phineas and Ferb. Oh, So okay. for our last category, we have events from Phineas and Ferb. You events? Know, like... Well, the city of Danville has some strange, oh, <laughs> strange. Uh, some strange traditions, some yes, strange holidays do. that happen there they do. Uh, that their mom is usually involved with in one way or another. <laughs> yes. Yes, she is. So our three events here are the Feast of St. Lulu, the Mexican Jewish Cultural Festival, <laughs> And the 100th annual running of the chinchillas. <laughs> I can see any of these being... Okay, listen one more time. The Feast of St. Lulu, the Mexican Jewish Cultural Festival, and the 100th annual running of the chinchillas. I'm going to be wrong here, but I'm going to say that one is incorrect. The Feast of St. Lulu? Yes. You are correct. All right. That is the lie. The Feast of St. Lulu is referenced in Muppet Treasure Island. Okay. So that circles us all the way back That's around fabulous. the Muppets. That's a fabulous quiz. <laughs> See, I knew, I was pretty sure two was, but three, it couldn't, it felt very Phineas and Ferb, but I couldn't remember. Yeah, I, I don't think you've probably gotten to, based on where, where you've told me that you were when you took so a break from Phineas and Ferb. I don't think you've gotten to that okay. one yet. Yeah, so. They have a lot of strange traditions there in, in Granville. <laughs> strange festivals or city events. What's and, that? Like the they have that whole about the shark and the ship and stuff. And <laughs> so hey, I got what six? Yeah, I think you only missed one. Man, I feel I I I'm gonna give myself a pat on the back. Nice job, and the only one you missed, yeah, that was the Talon Jindro, the Star Which Wars. Which was a pretty legit <laughs> Star Wars name. So yeah, I had I had fun researching that and putting that together. Thank you to all the wikis for all of those things. Yes, even Dr. Seuss has a wiki. Uh, well, who doesn't have a wiki? Exactly. <laughs> you don't have a wiki, you ain't nobody. <laughs> And I have probably spent way too much time, except I think the Dr. Seuss is today is the first time I've ever looked that one up. So, is there a wiki about how many all the wikis? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if there's not. I feel like they should be a sponsor. <laughs> yes, I think Inceptgen would uh, probably point us the right way. <laughs> I concur. So yeah, well, I hope you enjoy that challenge accepted. I, I apologize if those of you, I know it's been a while since we've done a what if, but I had an idea and then I got excited for challenge accepted this this time around. It's about time for what if, but I think for this topic, that was, was a great. 
it, it was it was fun. And, uh, but stay tuned. Maybe we'll do What If next time if you've been looking forward to it. Meanwhile, you can find all of our episodes at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Also, uh, feel free to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. And Nick, where can people uh, follow us on social media if they wish to touch you social go, media? Yeah. If you're going to go for social media, come do something fun like us. So <laughs> on Facebook, we're there under Derailed Trains of Thought. We're on Twitter. Um, I feel we, like you just gave us pressure to actually put fun stuff on our social media. It just exi- our existence is fun. <laughs> okay, there you go. No, yeah, we're we're not particularly active on social media. I'm not sure why you're following us, but <laughs> I mean, because we may we may do something cool. We have done cool stuff in the past. We yeah. just we have a hard time of maintaining a habit of it. But yeah, and then I'll find us on Spotify just to listen. You know what we could do, Nick? Yes. You've, you've been sharing on your personal Facebook a lot of music lately. I have been sharing a lot of music. We could, uh, we should probably cross post your, because people love our soundtracks. They love, like, I know my brother adores the soundtracks. Of course he does. Yes. So he uh, wishes we had more soundtracks. I think maybe we get a spot for someone who just it's just all soundtrack all the time. <laughs> but this year you've been posting a song every day on your personal yeah, Facebook. Just for fun, yeah. So we should we should at least put your playlist of all those. Oh, we do um, that. We should post those through our social media at some point. Yes. Speaking of soundtrack, do you have one for us now? I do actually have a soundtrack. So this uh, is not very connected to lies, except that the title has the word lies in it. Okay. Um, and I had known nothing about this game. It's from the game Nights into Dreams. Okay. It's titled Lies Within Dreams, remixed by Louisa, and it is just a lot of fun. It uses some very unique instrumentation, or instruments, not instrumentation, and I hope that you will enjoy kind of rocking out. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but oh, okay. head, head. So it's in dreams, but it's a rocking dream. Uh, it's not, again, rock's not quite, but it's, it's very energetic. Let's go with that. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So meanwhile, it sounds like uh, there's uh, there's some some energy in this workshop all of a sudden. Yeah. Is that, is that a, a marionette over there? I, I Yeah. I think he's dancing alongside a cricket. Well, I don't see that every day. No, that is that is something new. Yes. So, well, okay, well, let's, uh, maybe we should go introduce ourselves. Yeah. yeah, we'll go say hi and maybe we'll go on an adventure or something. Sounds good to me. All right, well, thank you folks for listening. Until next time, this is Tim. This is Nick. Bye-bye. Adios.